You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Nike's Considered Design Towards the end of the 1990s, the Nike Environmental Action Team, led by Sarah Seven, then Nike's Director of Corporate Sustainable Development, began shaping what would become Nike's cradle-to-cradle approach. Working closely with colleagues, Seven encouraged Nike's designers to go back to first principles, questioning basic design traditions in order to get to a new and better product outcome, which addresses the environmental footprint required to source, manufacture and recycle shoes. Seven liked the innovative and ambitious approach of Cradle to Cradle. So much of the environmental debate had addressed end-of-pipe problems and end-of-pipe solutions, she recalled, and here was a strategy that was turning that on its head. It was not about restriction or reaction. It created positive solutions at the front end of the design process. That meshes very well with the culture in Nike, and it's an exciting message. If you talk about environmental management systems and eco-efficiency, people just roll their eyes. But if you talk about innovation and abundance, it's inspirational. People get very, very excited. The first manifestation of all that excitement was a new brand called Considered, which Nike launched with its Considered boot in 2005. It was redesigned to eliminate adhesives and allow for easier disassembly. Design insights gained from this work helped inform subsequent innovations like the Pinnacle Air Jordan 23, launched in January 2008, and the Nike Trash Talk, made from post-manufacturing waste. Today, considered design for shoes includes a number of modifications. Leather pieces are stitched in an overlapping fashion so as to produce smooth internal seams, obviating the need for comfort liners and reducing the shoe's material mass. The leather pieces are tanned using a vegetable-based process and metal eyelets aren't used. The two-piece outsole is designed to snap together, eliminating harmful adhesives and simplifying recyclability and there is no use of PVC. Where possible, materials are also sourced locally to reduce transportation energy use. The result is that considered shoes generate 63% less waste in manufacturing than a typical Nike design. The use of solvents has also been cut by 80%, and 37% less energy is required to create a pair of shoes. But considered design is not just about shoes. In order to measure progress of all its products and designs against its cradle-to-cradle principles, Nike developed a considered index, which is a tool for evaluating the predicted environmental footprint of a product prior to commercialization. This system examines solvent use, waste, materials, and innovation for footwear. Apparel products are evaluated on waste, materials, garment treatments, and innovation. Nike claims that by continually raising that standard, we envision a future where the shoes you wear today become the shoes, shirts, or equipment you use tomorrow. 
this closed-loop manufacturing process where nothing is wasted and everything is kept in play is not just wishful thinking, it's the future. In order to create this future, Nike is committed to having all newly developed Nike footwear coming out of its US headquarters meet or exceed considered design baseline standards by 2011. This will be extended to apparel and European and Hong Kong offices by 2015 and sports equipment by 2020. One of the reasons Nike may very well succeed in meeting these targets is that considered design is bold and inspiring. As Ed Thomas, Director of Advanced Materials Research, put it, you've got to take the stake and you've got to plant it somewhere big and you've got to say that's where we're driving for. It's not just going more slowly, it's going to zero. It's actually turning around and picking a new direction. Other companies in the textiles industry are also evaluating their cradle-to-cradle impacts. In 2010, Levi's released the results of its total product life cycle analysis of a pair of 501 jeans. As CSR Asia reported, the data collected shows that a typical pair of jeans had carbon dioxide emissions of 32 kilograms, equivalent to driving 78 miles or 125 kilometers in a typical car. It also had a water footprint of nearly 3,500 litres. That's the same as 53 seven-minute showers. And the total life cycle consumed 400 megajoules of energy, equivalent to the amount of energy required to watch a plasma screen TV for 318 hours. What was even more surprising was how these footprints were accounted for by the different phases in the life of a pair of jeans. The usage or consumer ownership phase was by far the most intensive phase due largely to the regular washing of a pair of jeans, with 45% of the water, 57% of the energy and 58% of the overall contribution to climate change being consumed at this stage. Timberland's Eco-Confession One of Nike's biggest competitors is Timberland, which has been learning the lessons of sustainability for as long as, if not longer, than Nike. In spring 2007, Timberland introduced the Green Index, a measure of the environmental impact of their products. Our goal, they declared, is to provide consumers with visibility into the footprint that our business creates. The index program was expanded in 2008 to include a full range of outdoor products from boots to sandals. CEO Jeffrey Swartz says he got the idea for the design of the Green Index labels from the signage at Whole Foods. He says the signs were very simple in their assertions. Here's where this produce comes from. Here's why it's organic. I thought... Why can't we put some kind of signage or label on our products as a way to show their environmental impact? All the regulatory folks at Timberland told me my idea was dumber than dirt. We'd be admitting that we pollute, that we aren't good at what we do. They argued that we don't have a legal requirement to disclose, so why do it? But I naively believe that if you tell the truth, most people will applaud. Here's how the Green Index works. Using a shoe as an example, the following three factors are measured. Climate impact, the greenhouse gas emissions created through production. Chemicals, 
the presence of hazardous substances like PVC and solvent adhesives, and resources, the percentage by weight of recycled organic and renewable materials. The three scores are normalised on a scale of 1 to 10, added together and divided by 3. The score with the least environmental impact is 0, while 10 has the highest impact. The Green Index is certainly a clear and insightful way to provide customers with information, but Swartz admits that it was not all about the customer. He says... When we say that 5% of our energy is renewable, we're also admitting that 95% of our energy isn't. So I asked our team, how does that 5% compare to Nike? Their answer was, there's no way to know. So my reply was, there's one way to know. Let's put the number on a label. And if customers decide that that's important, Nike will have to tell them too. Now Nike is competitive. They won't want to disclose their energy from renewables unless it's at least 1% higher than ours. Putting the label on our products is not about the consumer because, honestly, the amount of pushback from the consumer has been minimal, he explained. But as an action-forcing mechanism inside our industry, it's been dramatic. If Nike gets to 6% renewable, we won't have a problem so long as we get to 7%. In other words, transparency can force all of us to try and get from 5% to 15% to 50% renewable energy. That's a conversation that couldn't have been forced until the motivation was market-based. At the end of the day, if the consumer doesn't care about this, it won't work, but the consumer is really a proxy to spur the industry to push the envelope on sustainability. Beyond Timberland, there are others like Good Guide, founded in 2007 by Dara O'Rourke, a professor of environmental and labor policy at the University of California at Berkeley. He's taking the idea of transparency and labeling to a whole nother level. Using publicly available data, Good Guide offers health, environment and society scores based on its own database for 65,000 products. It's even accessible with a barcode scanning iPhone app. Similarly, at projectlabel.org, you can type in the name of a company and receive numerous numerical scores on matters like worker treatment and waste management, based on a combination of published reports and user votes. Seventh Generation Cleans Up Nike and Timberland's efforts are laudable and I hope they succeed. Likewise for other mega-companies like Unilever that are being forward-thinking and ambitious. After all, every day around 160 million people in 150 countries buy a Unilever brand. It is encouraging to know, therefore, that in 2005, Unilever set out to understand how these brands impact on people and the environment in areas where they are sourced, produced, distributed and used. Today this is called their Brand Imprint Program, the results of which include the development of social missions for its Lifebuoy, Signal, Pepsodent and Close-Up brands, and an ambitious environmental plan for the company's laundry category. The so-called Clean a Planet Plan aims to reduce the environmental footprint of the company's laundry brands, as well as design products that help its consumers to reduce their environmental impacts and motivate people to adopt laundry habits that reduce their environmental impacts. 
Most critically, all this takes place within the frame of a bigger, more audacious vision to double the size of Unilever's business in a way that halves their absolute environmental footprint. For these companies, getting to sustainability is like turning around an oil tanker. However, there are also smaller, more nimble companies like Seventh Generation that are able to go much further, much faster. Seventh Generation, an American household cleaning products business, was started more than 20 years ago by Jeffrey Hollander, who took inspiration for its name and philosophy from the idea that in our every deliberation, we must consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations, which is an idea of the Native American Indian tribes. From the beginning, this meant thinking in a circular way about the impacts of their products. To begin with, this was like swimming upstream. When Seventh Generation told executives at the old Fort Howard Paper Company that we wanted to market bathroom tissue made from unbleached recycled fibre, they laughed, recalls Hollander. Despite such early resistance, however, Seventh Generation has remained steadfast in its commitment to become the world's most trusted brand of authentic, safe and environmentally responsible products for a healthy home. And indeed, it now has an impressive catalogue of cradle-to-cradle design products and has been doing extremely well, showing strong growth even through the recession. Of course, ensuring that seventh generation lives up to their promise of authenticity is something that requires constant vigilance. For example, in March 2008, the company was exposed by the Organic Consumers Association for having detectable levels of the contaminant 1.4 dioxane in their dish liquid. In fact, Seventh Generation's product was declared the safest of those available and they had been working with suppliers for more than five years to remove this substance. But as Hollander later declared, our effort was simply not good enough. Our real mistake was to exclude consumers and key stakeholders from our ongoing dialogue about the dioxane. In short, we flunked the transparency test. The very foundation of transparency is information, and the most basic kind is a full list of product ingredients, which, unbelievably, is not required by US law for household products. Consequently, 7th Generation launched a Show What's Inside initiative, which included an educational website and an online label reading guide, downloadable to shoppers' cell phones, which helped them interpret labels at the point of purchase, especially any associated risks. As Hollander and Bill Breen report in their book, The Responsibility Revolution, not long after, S.C. Johnson launched a cloned version called What's Inside. That's just what we had hoped for, declared Hollander and Breen. When a $7.5 billion giant like S.C. Johnson puts its brawn behind ingredient disclosure, it's likely that the rest of the industry will follow regardless of what the regulators do. Despite its green image, Seventh Generation also knows that it needs to create virtuous cycles for its social as well as its environmental impacts. As a result, in 2009, the company partnered with Women's Action to Gain Economic Security, or Wages, 
It's an organization committed to building worker-owned, cooperatively structured, eco-friendly residential cleaning businesses in San Francisco. Together, they launched Home Green Home, Wages' fourth worker-owned cooperative. This unique social enterprise serves the city of San Francisco and is creating healthy, dignified jobs for women in an industry known for long hours and low pay. The women who own and work in the business earn wages that average 50% more than their non-cooperative counterparts and receive health care and paid vacation benefits. In future, seventh generation and wages hope to expand the innovative practice beyond San Francisco.